Houston, we have a podcast. Welcome to the official podcast of the NASA Johnson Space Center, Episode 3, Landing from Space. I'm Gary Jordan, and I'll be your host today. So on this podcast, we bring in the experts, NASA scientists, engineers, astronauts, pretty much all the folks that have the coolest information, the stuff you really want to know, right on the show to tell you about everything NASA, everything from extraterrestrial dirt to the unknown parts of the universe. So today, we're talking landing from space with Dr. John Charles. He's the chief scientist for the NASA Human Research Program here at the NASA Johnson Space Center in Houston, Texas. And we talked about the more human side of space, specifically what happens to the human body in the microgravity environment and what that means for adjusting to life back on Earth, even on other planets like Mars. I also had the chance to catch NASA astronaut Shane Kimbrough just two days after landing from a 173-day mission aboard the International Space Station, and he gave a first-hand experience of what it feels like to adjust back to Earth's environment after living in space for that long. So with no further delay, let's go light speed and jump right ahead to our talk with Dr. John Charles, and then NASA astronaut Shane Kimbrough. Enjoy. Minus five seconds and counting. Mark. Launch the midlife search for the radio. Alright, Dr. Charles, welcome. Is it should I say Dr. Charles or John? Copy John. John. Okay. <laughs> All right. Well, John, thanks for coming on the show. We always seem to end up in the same circles. First with the landing on Mars video and with speaking presentations. And, you know, you were the first person I thought of when, when we had this topic. But what's cool about this one is uh, for this particular podcast, I actually got a chance to talk to Shane Kimbrough two days after he landed, which was awesome. I mean, he was he was really tired, but it was it was pretty cool to talk to him. Not to say that you're not a special guest, but... Uh, yeah, I'll try not to be as tired as he was. <laughs> well, we're doing this, at, uh, I guess, after lunchtime, so yeah, I can understand. That's, that's possible, <laughs> it is. Yeah. Um, but what's cool is that he was, he was just getting adjusted to Earth. It was perspective of such a unique perspective. He just came down, and he was still getting adjusted. And that takes weeks, right? That yes, takes, it may take... Well, some folks say it takes as long to respond to adjust back to Earth as it did in flight. So there, there is going to be ongoing adjustments, especially in, in the areas of, say, the bone loss, that will take months and months and months before they even come back to what they were approximately before flight. Yeah. The, I mean, even some peop- uh, astronauts say they have, they still have dreams about floating. I, I mean, even floating, and yeah. they kind of, I guess, their body just doesn't know where they are. That was. It's certainly, it is certainly a, a monumental experience, and I cannot imagine ever getting tired of it or used to it. I, I, I understand Peggy Whitson was excited to get the mission extension of, of three more months. Right. And uh, and she said she was actually interested in going back again. So. So I think once you've experienced the, the wonders of weightlessness and the, the awesome view out the window and all the other parts of, of going on a space flight these days, it's not something you ever get used to, and it probably colors your dreams for many, many years to come. That's a beautifully put way, <laughs> a beautiful way of saying it. But uh, that's what I guess, you know, for at least for Shane Kimbrough is uh, – kind of I guess happy to be home you know when we were interviewing him his his wife was uh was not too far away so it was you know I'm sure he's happy to see his family sure. but I was thinking you know why don't we start off with that conversation with Shane Kimbrough because he does talk about a lot of the human aspects and and he just says you know I'm dizzy and this is how I'm feeling so I thought it'd be cool if uh, we kind of elaborated 
on that a little bit after. But first, let's start with uh, Shane Kimbrough's interview. We do have to go back in time. So, producer Alex, let's cue the wormhole sound effect thingy. So if you need to take a breather, you know, let me know because it's just like talking and no, then talking no, and then talking. Let's knock it out. Oh man. Cool. So wow. Okay, I know. Um, I know it's been a busy couple of days for you, but uh, you know, thanks for taking the time to actually set you know ten minutes aside to have this conversation. You just landed two days ago. That's uh, that's pretty crazy. But uh, since we only do have like a short period of time, I thought we'd start and if you can just kind of take us through the journey of starting at when you were saying your final goodbyes to Peggy and Toma and Oleg, and then you just closed the hatch, and then that journey all the way to where you, bam, smacked the, smacked the ground. All right, yeah, we were, it was an anticipated moment when we were going to say goodbyes. Um, we'd kind of been sitting around for about an hour waiting on the time to when uh, Sergei, the, the Soyuz commander, came and said, it's time mm-hmm. to go. Um, so we did say our goodbyes. We gave hugs to all the, the other crew members we were leaving, like you said, Peggy and Toma and Oleg. Uh, we, we spent about four and a half months together with them, so uh, we spent a lot of time together. So we got got to be really good friends and uh, crewmates. So it was it was great with them. But it was you know we were heading home, and so we had to say our goodbyes. Quickly shut the hatch right after we said goodbyes, and then we started preparing our vehicle um, with leak checks and everything, trying to trying to make sure we were leak tight before we departed from the space station. So a lot of like a lot of right to the procedures, right? Not a lot of reflection. Absolutely, time, we didn't have right any any time to mess around <laughs> uh, because you we do a leak check, then we get in our spacesuits, and then we get in the the descent module, close the hatch to the other module, uh, and then we depart um, pretty quickly. So all that happened, you know. By the procedure, if we had any hiccup in that, then we wouldn't have been leaving that day. So it was, it was pretty pressure-packed trying to get to the undocking time. And so we undock, and then we actually, after you undock, you have about an hour and a half, which is an entire revolution around the Earth, to really not do much. So we oh. took a little nap because uh, we were <laughs> well really tired. I mean, they had us on a crazy sleep sh- shift on the last day, and uh, so we were pretty worn out. So we took a little nap and uh, and then got ready after that for the deorbit burn, which is a which is a pretty big emotional event when the, the big engine fires off yeah. and puts you on a trajectory to, to enter the Earth's atmosphere at the correct angle um, so that you actually make the landing site and uh, make sure the vehicle's pointing in the right direction so you, you don't burn up when you're coming through the atmosphere. So that's obviously a plus. So you didn't really feel the deorbit burn, right? You mainly felt the reentry. Is that what it um, You do feel the deorbit burn because oh, okay. the engine kicks in and it's you know it's kind of like a kick in the pants and you're thrown back in your seat. Oh, wow. And it, you know, it lasts, I think, about couple minutes so you know it's a sustained um, kind of pulse and, uh, and you feel it that whole time right yeah you're feeling oh. it I mean initially you feel a little more and then you get used to it right right um, and so then you're you're kind of getting ready to come back through the atmosphere then separation of our the descent module and the bayo the uh, habitation compartment happens that's kind of like just an explosion <laughs> right so it, you feel it you hear it you see things flying by the windows from the from the other module that just came apart um, so that's pretty interesting. Yeah, um, not a boring ride. No, not a boring <laughs> ride. And then we're kind of getting ready for the next big event. There's always you know, four or five big events along the way. The next one was parachute opening, of course, after you started pulling, feeling the, the effects of gravity. All right, so we were pulling, and we ended up pulling them 4.3 Gs, I think. So Ooh. we felt like 4.3 times your body weight, which after microgravity felt like about 20 times your body weight. <laughs> yeah. And so that built up, and we kind of just felt it building. We were watching the meter go up, and, uh, man, I was like, wow, that's a lot. And, uh, <laughs> and then right after that, the parachute you know, started coming out, and that was really a, an emotional event um, because it's really um, – 
dynamic, I guess is the oh. best word. Um, and it kind of throws you around um, really drastically four or five times. And, you know, it's completely normal. But uh, <laughs> until you go through it the first time, which is my first experience, I was like, there's no way this could be normal. <laughs> but uh, it is, and that's the way they do it. And it's just the parachute coming out and then getting set up and the risers getting in the right position. And then once that's done, and then it's kind of a peaceful ride until you uh, – crush into the ground yeah yeah <laughs> okay so the swinging back and forth how would you compare that is it i'm thinking of amusement park ride but it's got to be more intense than that right it is but you know i don't know if there's one out there that just really slams you to the right and <laughs> slams you to the left and you do that five or six times you know in a in a you know, I can't think of one that does that, but that's what it was like. I, I couldn't believe it. Yeah, I guess that's why they, you know, they kind of strap you into that thing real tight, right? Because you're right. you're getting bounced and kicked and like all the exactly. Directions. Yeah. So as we coming in, you start. The advice I got was: as soon as you start feeling the g-force, start pulling on your straps as much as you can to really get you down into that seat. Yeah. Um, so that you're not just secured, but you know, getting ready for the impact of the landing as well. So is it fair to say that that landing was the hardest impact, probably? Oh yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. No doubt. How did that feel? It was, you know, I've heard it called like it's like a really bad car crash, and now I can confirm that that is accurate. Wow! So uh, you hit just really hard, and in our case, we hit twice really hard. So. Oh, and then you <laughs> so, and then you roll around. And then we right? rolled some more too, just for added effects. So. And then you said, I remember you saying, because we we did like a bunch of other events before this, but you said like you you were in a position where you were just kind of dangling. Yeah, a so bit, I was right? kind of on top, looking down at the ground, but yeah. in that case, I was hanging from my straps. Wow! Um, really uncomfortable feeling for about. <laughs> five minutes five to ten minutes until they could get there and roll the vehicle kind of to the normal position oh that's it just five so. to ten minutes and then they were they yeah, were there it was very likely we had perfect weather that day the search and rescue forces saw us the whole time and really right after the parachute opened they tracked us all the way to the ground so they were right there wow. in about 10 minutes and got us out pretty quickly. So when that door opened and they pulled you out, what was that What was that feeling? Was it relief or was it just more of the, you know, just here's the next step kind of thing? Or like describe those emotions. Yeah, so the hatch, they opened the hatch, the search and rescue forces, and they're familiar faces from our training in Star City, Russia. I mean, they're Russian yeah. folks, uh, but it's just nice to see their smiling faces. And then I saw my flight surgeon from NASA and the, the chief astronaut, Chris Cassidy, right there as well. So, you know, we were all smiles and waving. We all felt great at the time. And uh, getting out is very challenging um, because it is so small, like we were talking about earlier. Right. Um, but um, they, they have to help you out. You can't get out on your own um, for gravity, for one. And then it's just too tight and too small. You can't even really get to unstrap yourself. They have to get in there. It's that tight. Wow. Like you can't move your hands enough to unstrap most of your straps. So they get in there and help you out. Uh, doing that as well as pulling you out of the vehicle. Yeah. So, okay, what, when you first, you know, you're pulled out of the capsule, you have fresh air, familiar faces. Obviously, that's a great moment, but so now you're you're kind of, you're back on Earth. You can feel it, right? What's, how are you feeling? Do you feel sick? Do you feel, is it mostly happy? Is there overwhelming feelings? What's going on? Uh, I think people have felt all those things you mentioned. <laughs> uh, I really felt great. I love uh, smelling that fresh desert air. Uh, it, was, it was kind of like a 60 degree day in Kazakhstan. Just beautiful. The wind was blowing. It was just awesome to have that sensation of nature again um, for me. And then just seeing friendly faces and, and knowing I was going to get to talk to my family pretty soon after that was pretty special. Yeah, that's amazing. What was the, um, so what was the main thing you noticed about the way your body was adjusting to life back on earth? Um, well, to not move your head around is, is great advice, I guess, because um, yeah, that really uh, provokes some folks to get sick. So okay. I really try to keep my head focused straight ahead 
if anybody was talking to me, I, I would make them come right in front of me. So, so I didn't have to kind of, because the natural tendency is to just look at them, right? But that really gets yeah. your inner ear spinning up pretty well. And, and that must have been hard because there's a lot happening, right? People are all over. Is. Yeah, there yeah. Is. So I heard people to my side and I, was, I just told them, hey, come right in front of me so I can see you because <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to turn my head. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, and, it, and it seemed to pay off. So Yeah. Well, okay. So besides feeling sick, were you were you weak? Like, or can you move around or what was You can the... move around a little okay, bit. Um, okay. They were carrying us. You know, I wasn't walking anywhere at the time. Um, and they had people that carried us to, to where we were sitting there for a while. And then mm-hmm. after that, they carried us to the medical tent. But once we got in there, then it was a bunch of testing and walking and with your eyes closed and open and just crazy things. And, um, you know, just trying just to see where break. you were at. So. <laughs> <laughs> you just don't get a break. And then they yeah. throw you on, a, what is it, a hel- take it a helicopter yeah. and then a helicopter to a plane. You're right. off to Houston. Exactly. Where did you, I'm guessing you slept on the plane, right? I did. Slept yeah. really well on well, the plane. So that was good. <laughs> I probably should have started off with this, I just realized. But how are you feeling now i'm feeling yeah i'm feeling really well um, compared to what i thought i'd be feeling at this point it's only two days after i landed like you mentioned earlier and uh, i really feel great had a great workout today which i think really made me feel better oh wow you're Um, right back into it yeah so we got about a 45 day program of working out and getting you rehabilitated um, back to your full strength okay it should only take maybe a week or so to get there and then from there we'll just build on on whatever strength i have all right all right well one more question and then i'll let you go uh what was the first thing you ate when you got back there (laughs) A lot of people are asking me that, and it's, it's a really boring answer, but it was a banana because oh. uh, uh, that's something I hadn't had for, in a while. I was really wanting some fruit. That's uh, true. It's not yet. I had a banana fresh. and an apple and uh, and had a bunch of those on the plane. Okay, so once you're – how about this? Once you're well enough, what's the yeah. first thing you're going to eat? I think we're going to do some Italian tonight, which I've been oh. thinking about, so that's good. And then the Mexican probably here in the next few days as All well. Right. So All right. All right. Definitely two good ones. Well, Shane, thank you for uh, spending this couple of minutes with My me. My pleasure. Thanks, Gary. Cool. All right, producer Alex, we're going to have to work on that wormhole sound effect. Come on. Uh, that was quite a ride. I mean, I was, I was, <laughs> I honestly felt sick just listening to the way that he was going down. Uh, but there was a lot going on for every step of the way. So, um, I mean, first off, you know, what, what are those changes that he was talking about that makes him feel so, you know, so off when he lands on the ground? The human body goes through many changes in weightlessness and the rest of space flight. I'm always interested most in weightlessness. I don't like the term microgravity. I think that's unnecessarily accurate. Unnecessarily accurate There's a lot of syllables, too. Yeah, a lot of syllables, too. <laughs> uh, but it, the weightlessness has profound effects, and I like to say that it's evolutionarily unanticipated. There is nothing that has ever happened to us in our lives and in all of the lives of everybody that lived before us all the way back to as far as you want to go that is weightlessness now even floating in water is not weightlessness because you're still subject to gravity the parts of your body that are denser go to the bottom and the parts of your body that are lighter float to the top and that's true even in the vestibular system the organs of balance he was talking about being dizzy Uh, those are not weightless even underwater. The only time they're weightless is if you fall off a cliff and then the effect is very short-lived. Right. You don't don't get a chance to enjoy it uh, very much. Right. So this is a real opportunity for the body to experience something that has never experienced before ever. And not surprisingly, there are changes that occur in the body and the the changes might be summarized uh, by the concept that the body economizes its metabolic energy. It doesn't waste energy supporting metabolic processes it doesn't think it needs. Hmm. And nobody can, you can't tell your body 
hang on to that because you're going to need it eventually. The body doesn't talk to you in that sense. The body responds, and by this I mean the, the autonomic processes, the physiological processes, mm-hmm. respond to the environment that they have seen recently and are seeing at the moment. So as far as the body is concerned, gravity went away and it's never coming back. And so what do I need to do to be more effective metabolically in the environment that I will see for the, forever? It's just the body adapting to a new it's environment. To a new environment. Hmm. And luckily, the body adapts nicely to the weightless environment right. because it really is sort of a step down. It's less hard to do almost everything metabolically in weightlessness. Mm-hmm. And the body doesn't know that you're going back to Earth with gravity. So you have to fool the body to get back to get ready to go back to Earth. So you go through the changes of weightlessness and these, uh, these uh, metabolic efficiencies I'm talking about include not maintaining bone strength. You don't need bone strength in weightlessness. Mm-hmm. And the body says, great, I'm not going to spend metabolic energy on that anymore. I'm going to de- dedicate it to something else. Right. You don't need muscle strength. You don't need cardiovascular strength so much. You don't need all the intricate understanding of how to respond to gravity. You don't need to keep track of where all your joints are, your limbs, and all that kind of stuff. all of that is gone in the weightless environment. That's right. right? It's just you don't need your bones because you're not pressed you're up not, against anything. You're not, you're just you're not supporting yourself anymore. Right. Uh, there is a residual bone strength, a residual, residual bone volume or density that you will probably plateau. And if you stay in space forever, you will never become like the guys were in Wall-E when they had no bones, <laughs> oh, just yeah. the big blobs of jelly. That's right. That would never happen. You probably, based on other studies and, and, and clinical experience, you probably lose up to 40% of your bone mass eventually. That is after years and years and years. Wow. So you, I mean, even con- so, is this saying that you're not working out during those years? Yeah, assuming you're just weightless. Assuming, assuming you're just weightless and not working out. That's okay. right. Okay. Which would be, I think, my preferred lifestyle. I'd like <laughs> to be weightless and not working out. <laughs> but that, see, Gary, that's the the answer though. Is the way we fool the body, or or don't fool the body. We just change the conditions is by working out. So the astronauts mm-hmm. work out two hours a day every day including resistive exercise, my favorite, I call that weightlifting and weightlessness. Right. And it's all done with hydraulics and, and, and computers. And then resist or uh, aerobic training, exercising on treadmills and bicycles and maybe a rowing machine someday. And what that does is put a load on the bones and the muscles and the cardiovascular system, not the vestibular system, not the organs of balance, but all the other systems mimicking the absence or the the effect of gravity which is then absent uh, in that environment so that's um so they're doing those you said aerobic and resistive so that's the i guess you like you said the in in space the weightlifting machine right. sort of with hydraulics right. and that simulates weightlifting and then you also have aerobic exercise which is the treadmill and the and the, and the bicycle. bicycle so you have to do this i believe two and a half hours every single day yeah. in order to maintain right. everything and that's a total of two plus hours a day that includes breakdown and set up and changing your clothes and all that stuff so you do oh, yeah. you know multiple tens of minutes at each I see. and uh, different different exercises on different days and I think one day is actually a free form you can do whatever you want but you know the other days are fairly prescribed but what that does is put a load on the bones and the muscles and the cardiovascular system and other organs 
as if they were doing something against gravity. It's not the same, but it's it's close. So that's the way that you're saying you're tricking your body tricking into your body. thinking that you know you don't need you still need to maintain the muscles. Hold right. on, stop. You're, you know you're maintaining them for something else. You're maintaining them for exercise and not for fighting against gravity. Right. But it has the the beneficial effect in, in many cases of being appropriate for gravity. And in fact, the resistive exercises that we're doing now seem to uh, minimize the, the loss of bone structure that occurs in weightlessness that has been seen on previous missions. Mm-hmm. So the uh, advanced resistive exercise device, the ARED, may well be the way that we protect bones and muscles in the future on Mars missions. It oh. may be that we're able to go on really long missions without losing much calcium and without changing the structure very much of the bones. And it's not the loss of calcium per se that's the problem, it's where the calcium comes out of. The bones are developed in everybody whilst you're growing up. And right. You're, when you're growing up, you know, you're first you're born with a skeleton, and then you spend the first 18 years of your life banging yourself around and jumping up in trees and off of off of hillsides and, and falling and jumping and running and pulling and lifting and, and all that stuff you shapes your body. childhood. Right. And that's what I, <laughs> I saw people do it. Like I said, see previous comment. Right, right. But that's that shapes your body and gives you the structure you need to keep doing that for the rest of your life. And then at some point, that those those uh, structures, those uh, facets are completed, and you can then go and do useful things with the body that you've built up over the first eighteen plus years of your life. Right. So when you go into weightlessness, you start eating away at that in the absence of gravity. Uh, and if you uh, come back to the earth, you restore some of that, but you don't restore it the way it was originally. You restore it to the way it needs to be now, mm-hmm. which means you don't go back inside the bones and reestablish the, the framework, the structure. And the bones actually have structure inside of them. The outside is called the cortex, and it's, it's a thick layer. And then on the inside is, are the trabeculae, and the trabeculae are like a framework. Think of a lattice work inside of your, your bones. And those that lattice work is... is genetically engineered by you as you grow up to respond to the forces you're putting on bone. So it puts down calcium where the forces are the greatest, and it doesn't put down calcium where the forces are not the greatest. Hmm. But that's the structure you take with you for the remainder of your active life, unless you go into weightlessness, in which case that all sort of gets eroded gradually but persistently over the time in weightlessness. So your bones actually do lose calcium, you do lose mass, uh, bone mass, and you lose strength of the bones. Not so far, not enough to cause you to fracture when you come back to the ground. There have been a couple of astronauts who have fractured bones in the post-flight period, and we have analyzed those, and they would have fractured their bones if they had never flown in space. They just caused an impact that broke bones, and that's just what happens. They were trying to run up and down trees like their childhood days, right? Nothing (laughs) quite so glamorous. One guy fell off of a stage after a public affairs presentation. Oh, no. He he didn't fall off. He tripped because there was something on the edge of the stage. So it was unavoidable whether he was an astronaut or not and whether he'd flown in space or not. Right. So we we don't see bone-breaking episodes in astronauts that would not have broken their bones beforehand, but there's the risk that with even longer flights, longer than six months like Shane was on and longer than one year like Scott Kelly and Mikhail Kornienko were on, and perhaps, you know, two and a half year Mars missions might be getting close to the threshold where you might start seeing a a slight possibility, increased possibility of breaking bones under normal circumstances. Hmm. Not during the mission, but after the mission when you're back on the Earth. You know, that's sort of after 30 months, that's when you start getting close to that threshold. So it has to do with 
the time that you're in the weightlifting It seems to be an ongoing process. And like I say, though, that process seems to be interrupted by the heavy resistive exercise. Right. So that sort of stretches that period out. So you're not at risk if you keep doing your heavy resistive exercise. But that's an interesting question, too. And you haven't asked me that one yet, but I'll go ahead and answer it. That is, <laughs> you and, were just reading my mind. Yeah. <laughs> that, is, that is, are we going to do resistive exercise on the Mars missions? And mm-hmm. the answer is, I hope so. Right. Uh, but we probably will not be using the A-RED. The A-RED is a very large device that it's takes heavy. up an entire module right. on the space station. That's a node, which is, that's a module. Mm-hmm. And uh, we don't have, probably will not have that kind of real estate, that kind of volume available for that kind of device. So right now what the human research program is, is doing is trying to understand which of the exercises on the A-RED are the most effective in protecting which of the bone facets that are important to protect, and then building a smaller device that'll just just do those, a tailored, specialized device. Hmm. So this is maybe an important point to make, and that is astronauts will go on missions and will suffer deficits, deficits that we know how to protect against Mm -hmm. because we can't afford to protect against them within the limited constraints of of a spaceship. So we will give them a device that gives them certain exercise capabilities to protect them against deficits that we think are the most important. Mm-hmm. But we may be allowing the rest of other aspects of that, say the other aspects of the, the skeleton, to go ahead and atrophy just because we don't have the flexibility and the resources to protect them against that. We don't think that's going to put them at an increased risk because they're not going to be doing things that will need those aspects of the skeleton, for example. Right, so you've, you've prioritized. And we had to prioritize lots and lots of things when we start talking about a Mars mission. Right, yeah. No, and that, I knew we wanted to talk about a Mars mission because that's <laughs> the only thing you talked to me about. Any, ever. <laughs> well, we were getting there. Yeah. I was taking baby steps, yeah. though. You just jumped right there. I did, I did. <laughs> I guess, uh, so how would, the, how would the exercises, since we are on Mars now, how would the exercises work on Mars? You know, if you're talking about landing on, would you kind of use sort of the same thing or can you afford a different type of exercise? Well, it's going to have to be tailored uh, for the Mars environment and for the Mars environment means both exercising at one third of a G or 38% of Earth's normal gravity, we call it a third of a G mm-hmm. uh, on Mars, uh, and also being appropriate for the spacecraft that will land on Mars. And you raised a very important question. I hope you realized you raised it because it's an important question. Everything that is, is intentional. That's, it's, it's a matter of, of economics to get to Mars. First, you've got to build a spaceship, and then you've got to send it there with fuel. And fuel is the coin of the realm in space. It takes lots and lots and lots and lots of fuel to get any place. And, and if you get there, then it takes even more fuel to slow you down and land safely. Mm-hmm. So everything on the surface of Mars will be mass constrained and volume constrained because mass uh, volume requires mass you know if you build a small room it's got less mass than a big room mm-hmm. so uh, we are going to be focusing on not only what we can put into the mars transit vehicle which will be constrained by the volume of the, of the vehicle but also what we can land on mars which will be constrained by the volume of the lander and the, the mass capable of landing so it may well be that we figure out, we hope we figure out a way to use that one-third of a G on Mars as a way to supplement some of the exercise that they, they would normally be doing in their mini-gym inside the Mars lander or the Mars habitat. Right. But so that, when you're thinking about a Mars mission, it kind of goes back to that idea of, of prioritizing, right? So just as you're going to prioritize which parts of the body are the most sensitive, the, right. the, the most important for you to maintain, when you're sending stuff to Mars, you got to prioritize which things are the most important things to bring, descend, and make sure they're really small and light and 
don't take up a lot of space. Small and light and don't take up a lot of space and don't take a lot of energy, don't, like, don't take a lot of mass, power, volume, which are the, right. the important constraints of a spaceship. And just think we started talking about this because I was trying to make the point that Shane's body is not back to normal yet. It's still, it's his bones are going to take months to get back to normal. But other organ systems may respond more quickly. But they will get back to normal? Is, is that see, here's a metaphysical question. Question: What does normal mean in a case like this? Because your bone right. changes normally over the course of your lifetime, including over every six months. You know, he was gone for six months. His bone was going to be atrophying a little bit anyhow. Right. So we're not going to get him back to what he was before flight. And why would we? Because he wouldn't be at that condition now after his landing if he'd just been walking around the earth for six months. Mm-hmm. Our goal is to get him back to where they need to be to live a full, happy, functional life here on earth. But it's, you, can't, you, know, you can't go home again. You can't go back to your old skeleton again. You just, this is, things are different <laughs> with time in life, and that's doubly true for time spent in space. Yeah, and it doesn't matter. You're, you're always gonna, it's just going to get older. Time is right. just going to go older. forward. That's right. But uh, you, I guess, you know, bones are not the only thing you have to think about, right? You have that's to think correct. about a lot of other things. Shane mentioned, you know, when he landed and they pulled him out, he couldn't even turn his head. He was extremely dizzy. And see, I think this is the other extreme. The bones are the, some of the slowest to respond in space flight and some of the slowest, slowest to respond post-flight. Uh, during the recovery back on Earth, but the vestibular system is probably the fastest responder. The vestibular system is the organ system of balance, mm-hmm. and it allows us to stay upright. We are constantly making adjustments in our in our bones and our muscles and the way they're they're lining our lining us up. I mean, the old illustration is imagine. Uh, balancing a broomstick. Remember broomsticks? We used to have brooms and broomsticks. And imagine balancing a broomstick <laughs> upright on your on the palm of your hand, and all the adjustments you have to make to keep that upright. Right. That's how it is when you're walking. When you're walking uh, and standing on one foot or even standing on two feet, your body is constantly adjusting its center of, of balance and its center of mass to stay over the center of pressure of the feet so you can stay upright. And that all requires uh, sensors uh, in the skin, sensors in the soles of the feet, sensors that detect the, uh, the angles between uh, the, the ankle and the, the shin bone and all, all the other bones and the organs of balance inside the inner ear. And Gary, even though we're on a podcast, I am I am automatically pointing at my ears because the organs of balance are behind the inner ears. I can see. Yeah. <laughs> but I guess no one else can. Nobody else can. <laughs> but uh, this, this organ system is exquisitely tuned to respond to motion and to respond to gravity. There are, there are parts of it that, that detect how you move your head, and now I'm twisting my head left and right mm-hmm. because that causes a sensation in my inner ear, which in, then is a, in the most simple case is translated to my eyeballs, so my eyes counteract the motion of my head so I can keep continuing to look at you while we're talking. Mm-hmm. But there are other organs that detect my, my uh, tilting my head left and right, and those are the balance. Those are the uh, the otoliths. The other ones are the semicircular canals. But the otoliths, the mm-hmm. otolith is ear stone, otolith. Okay. And those are little stones inside little sacks of fluid inside your head, which detect which way down is. And those are the ones that are the most immediately affected by spaceflight and weightlessness, because if your whole existence is predicated on detecting down, and somebody takes away down, then what do you do? And that, that's, that's sort of how the, or the vestibular system responds to weightlessness. Is it spends a lot of time, the first several hours or several days, saying, oh, my God, oh, my God, oh, my God, my only job is to detect down and there is no down. What do I do now? 
and I'm built, you know, the organs of balance are built to detect motion and to detect uh, directions of acceleration, mm-hmm. so they may get more sensitive. Uh, in fact, the, the little otoliths in your ears might become bigger. They might accrete more of the mineral that they're made of because they, they're sure there's a down there someplace, and if they could only get heavier, they might be able to, to detect it again. And this is over the first couple of days? Over the, it's over the course of the space flight. Over oh, the over, course the, of, wow. over the course of the space flight. Over the course of the first few days. Thank you for bringing me back to the point at hand. <laughs> over the course of the first few days, essentially the brain says, you know what, you guys are just making gibberish. You're not making any sense anymore. I'm going to start ignoring you. Mm. Now the brain doesn't actually use words. It just sort of economizes the metabolic energy. It says, I'm not going to put so much metabolic energy into the nerves that come from the vestibular system because right. I'm just getting gibberish from there, and it just it makes my, the stomach part of me sick. Let's just not pay attention so much to that anymore. Mm-hmm. And in fact, in fact, on Skylab, the American space station in the 1970s, when there was a rotating chair on board specifically to see how often we could make astronauts sick in spaceflight. Rotating chairs are good ways to make people sick. If you rotate them and ask them to move their heads while they're rotating, that's a great way to be sick. Oh, yeah, I remember Turns out after, after a few days in weightlessness, astronauts couldn't be made sick anymore by moving their heads while they were rotating because yeah. the organs of balance had adapted and also because the, the stimuli were different. I've seen that video of uh, Tim Peake where uh, I think it was Tim Peake and Tim Coper when they were both on the International Space Station. Yeah. Copra took Peak and just spun around really, really, yep. really fast and then stopped him suddenly. Uh-huh. And Peak had like one moment where he stopped suddenly where, I mean, the whole time he was spinning, he didn't feel a thing. Yeah. And then he stopped suddenly. He's like, okay, I'm dizzy for a second. And now he's now good. gone. Yeah. So, so there are quick responses. But as I say, you know, the, the organs of, of balance, the vestibular system continue to, to like I say, keep, try to find gravity, and so they, they may actually increase the mass of the, of the little stones inside your inner ears. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's kind of an interesting novelty that nobody's really figured out yet whether what the functional, uh, operational, I should say, significance, functionally we know what it means, but operationally, what does it mean in terms of your ability to stand upright after you land on Mars or, or things like that. Mm-hmm. So there's lots of more, lots of, of research, lots of topics for research that we can uh, do in, in, in that domain. But uh, the point I was trying to make originally is that this is a quick responding organ system. Then slightly slower will be the organs of uh, your cardiovascular system. And those are all fluid-based in the sense that they are, you're a big pressurized bag of fluid. Nothing personal, but all of us are. <laughs> and, and our goal is to stay pressurized by the function of our heart. So the, the blood can then perfuse the, the brain. And also the, uh, the, the blood pressure we carry around with us, 120 over 80, when the doctor does your blood pressure, and tells you, yeah, it's 120 over 80. That's a good one. That's the pressure that you need to get through the muscles when you're exercising. The, the, when your muscles are exercising, they're constricting, they're contracting, they're squeezing down the blood vessels. It takes a certain amount of blood pressure to push through there to deliver, to deliver the, the nutrients that the muscles need to continue exercising. That's mm-hmm. where your 120 over 80 comes from. And uh, you have to continue building that pressure up. But in weightlessness, you're not exercising so much anymore. You're floating freely, you're relaxing, and your blood vessels are dilating, and your pressure, you'd actually lose blood volume in space. You may lose about a liter of blood in space. You may actually lose, that's about a a blood donation, about the same amount as they take out of you when you donate blood, half a liter or a liter. And that's because the body's the fluid distribution builds into it an assumption that a lot of your fluid is going to be down in your lower limbs, 
because of gravity and your lower limbs have a lot of, of uh, veins which are very floppy and good places to sequester extra fluid that you don't need, extra blood you don't need. Mm-hmm. And in weightlessness, that fluid is all shifted in the upward direction. And it's, oh. there's not a lot of extra venous volume in the upper part of the body. And so the body says, aha, I've got, a, I've got too much fluid on board. I know what to do in a case like this. Uh, decrease thirst, increase urination, you know, eliminate fluid elsewhere, uh, shift it into other parts of the body which has the effect of causing your body, your body to lose blood volume over the course of, of the first few weeks in space flight. That was going to be my question. Yeah. Where does that leader That's, go? The okay. leader goes out, it becomes tomorrow's coffee. <laughs> if you remember the old analogy about the water recycling system. That's right. Uh, so that, that fluid volume is appropriate for your time and weightlessness. And again, one of those tricks that you pull in your body is that you come back to the earth after your time and weightlessness and suddenly that fluid drains back down to the lower part of the body and then suddenly the upper part of the body is volume-deprived, and that's when you may st- feel a little bit lightheaded, a little bit weak. Astronauts wear compression garments in the lower body, and the legs especially, to squeeze to make sure the fluid stays up in the upper part of the body and not ah. pooling in the lower part of the body. Shane was wearing those uh, compression garments. They're called kintaver garments. That's a Russian name for kintaver. And it, <laughs> and it, nice translation. Yeah, I, I'm good at that. <laughs> Uh, but uh, that those are very effective techniques, and we are we have other capabilities like that as well. But the uh, the point is, during while he wasn't being uh, sensitive to emotion by not turning his head very much, he was also his body was functioning to keep the blood flowing to the upper part of his body through his brain, so he could he could continue to function normally. And that's that's all part of the, the early readaptation process as well. That's right. So the vestibular system is quick responding. The cardiovascular system is slightly slower. Uh, along the way, you lose muscle mass because you're not hefting your body mass around, and they have to rebuild that when you come back. Mm-hmm. And then out there at the sort of the tail end is your, your skeleton. What we haven't talked about before yet, though, are things like your radiation tolerance or radiation exposure, I should say. That's right. That doesn't plateau. That doesn't decrease. It doesn't accommodate because you keep getting exposed to radiation, and radiation has a, a cumulative effect. The more as you, long as you're in as space? As long as you're in space right. flight. So. So that's an ongoing issue, and that's something we will have to deal with going to Mars because you're exposed to even more radiation when you leave Earth's magnetic field and are exposed to the deep space radiation. And then the other aspects, of course, are the the psychological aspects of spaceflight. And if you think what I've described to you before is complicated, you ain't seen nothing yet because the psychology (laughs) is is one of the most self-regulating and self-protecting, let's call it an organ system that we have, until mm. it's not anymore. And so you, you adapt, you accommodate, you adjust. All those A words are the way that your, <laughs> your, your psychological aspects function in normal everyday life and especially in, in space flight. Yeah. But you're exposed to stresses that are the most unique that anybody's ever been exposed to in space flight. And if we're talking about a Mars mission, we're talking about, let's call it two and a half years, just you and three other people face-to-face and, and a, the volume of a couple of space station modules maybe. Uh, with the pressure and the eyes of the world on you to make sure you just wonder if you succeed. So there's no pressure, obviously. And and uh, nobody can help you when you're on your way to Mars. Uh, at least they can't help you immediately. There's there's going to be, when you get to Mars, you may be eight minutes away from Earth by radio. At the right. midpoint of your stay on Mars, you might be 40 minutes away, 20 minutes away, one way by radio. Yeah. So if you have a problem and it takes longer than it takes less time than 20 minutes to, to fully express itself and you don't know what you're doing, 
then you've got a big problem. That was know? one thing Shane said. He said five minutes. He landed five minutes, and everyone was you know taking him out That's of the right. capsule. And you're right. You're not going to have right. any, not only no help, but it's going to be a while until actually someone talks to you. I like to, to paint a picture for people. That is, if you're the first person on Mars, and you're climbing down the ladder, and you stumble and fall face first into the Mars dust. <laughs> The bad news is that everybody on Earth will see it because they're all going to be watching the live stream. Of but course. the good news is it'll be 20 minutes before they see it. <laughs> so you've got a few minutes of, of relief before you have to explain to the entire universe how you stumbled your, for your first step <laughs> on Mars. That would be pretty cool if that was the actual yeah. video of the first yeah. person stepping yeah. on Mars. <laughs> um, so obviously, you know, you have to be thinking about you know, this is, yeah, obviously you are thinking about, you know, this is kind of what that's going to look like if someone's going to land on Mars. You know, what are we doing to sort of get them ready for that? Mm-hmm. One of the things I think, I'm, I'm pretty sure Shane mentioned, was they sat him in a seat and, uh, for a while, and then they took him right to a tent and started doing some field tests. On yes, they're exactly, and that's exactly what we call it. We call it the field test. It is, it's one of their human research program investigations. It's a joint investigation by the U.S. and the Russians. Mm-hmm. Uh, the the U.S. and Russian investigators, Mildred Reshke and Anessa Kozlovska, are, life, are, are very long-time investigators, and they've both been anxious to do this kind of research hmm. on the, the adjustments of the sensory motor system and the, and the neurovestibular system to gravity after a long-duration spaceflight. We started doing this a few years ago. Chris Cassidy, I think, was the, actually the first guy to do it on his Soyuz landing. Oh. And we've been doing it pretty consistently since then to try and build up a database of, of responses so we know what an average and you know what the statistical mean is and what the variation is. Nice sample size. Nice sample size. Right. And it's also very dramatic and it's also uh, it's, it's, it's uh, an important set of things to do. But what it does briefly is after they are extracted from their Soyuz, and you heard Shane talk about how they got out of the Soyuz mm-hmm. with a lot of assistance, nobody going to help you on Mars. Your mm-hmm. vehicle has to be designed appropriately for you to get out on your own. Mm-hmm. Then they sit them in a chaise lounge for a little bit and have a brief public affairs event there on the steps of Kazakhstan. And that's, that's a, a good chance for them to catch their breath. And then they're carried, not walk, but they're carried into the medical tent. And inside the medical tent, in privacy, because of, of human research concerns. Right, makes sense. Uh, they are unsuited, uh, that is, their spacesuits are taken off, and then, then if they volunteered for this investigation, they go through a stylized set of, of motions, and they, they start off with being seated in a chair and just being asked to stand upright and stand quietly for 30 seconds or so. And, and that must a, be hard, that's though, That's a right? substantial stress, a substantial effort. Yeah. Sonny Carter, back on on uh, STS-33, I think it was, said, uh, and that was after a five-day flight, said the hardest thing he had to do on his space flight was stand up for the first time after a space flight out of the, the chair in the shuttle. Wow. So that was after just a few days. Now, this is after six months or so of, of weightlessness. Right. So that's the stress. We're watching their blood pressure, their heart rate, as well as their balance. And then... Uh, Sort of to add insult to injury, one of the, the early things we do then is to lay them on the floor in the face down in the prone position, and then ask them to stand up again. And that's the, to mimic. It's called it's called recovery from a fall. So the idea is that they uh-huh. have stumbled on Mars or they've stumbled on the Earth, and they find themselves face down in the in the red dust of Mars, like I mentioned before. Mm-hmm. How long does it take to get back up again? And that we can quantify how long it takes them to stand up to go through all the complicated. Uh, motions of, of getting up on your hands and getting up on your knees and then finding a way to, to balance yourself and get back up. That's a very integrated physiological and metabolic uh, uh, 
musculoskeletal activity, mm-hmm. and it's, it, it can be quantified. And then once they've got them standing up again, and I always hasten to add that no astronauts are actually pushed over, they're asked to lay down gently and then stand up. <laughs> as funny as that would be, it would probably that'd be very be, That'd be another good video. <laughs> uh, but then, then we make them walk an obstacle course uh, to see if they can do it. And the obstacle course is actually, as Shane described, walking in a straight line with your eyes closed and, or with your eyes open and then with your eyes closed. Mm-hmm. And sometimes you know, eyes closed, you, you veer because you're using, the, your visual system is your dominant way to orient yourself in the absence of a functional vestibular system and in the absence of a fairly relaxed uh, uh, set of uh, somatosensory uh, sensors. Those are the sensors that detect pressure in the bottom of your feet and at the angles, the angles of the joints, you know, your ankle angles and your elbow angles and things like that. Mm-hmm. So walking with eyes open is always a challenge. Walking with eyes closed is almost always impossible because you veer immediately left or right because you just can't orient yourself uh, in the absence of any, any inputs. Uh, and the inputs you're receiving are those that your brain has decided six months ago to ignore, and the inputs that it wanted us wanted to keep, you've now deprived of, of yourself of because your eyes are closed. So there's a little bit of, of a, a stressor there, and then there there are other things that we ask them to do as they sort of gradually move through this uh, set of, of uh, activities, moving heavy masses back and forth as if they were unpacking a Mars lander and getting things set up on the surface of Mars, wow. and you know just a, a bunch of generalized things like that so involving motions, bending, twisting, standing still, you know things like that. So, so how long does that usually take? It takes take about right? 45 minutes wow. in, the, in the tent. And that's only a subset. When they get back to Houston, there's a much longer set of measure of uh, activities they go through. And that'll be 24 hours after that. landing. Right. But we also test them in the airport in uh, Karaganda, which is where the helicopter takes them after they land. Right. Or we test them in the airport uh, either in Norway or in Scotland, depending on where the, the jet lands to refuel on the, way, on the right. way back. Their layover. Yeah. So that gives us you know, minutes and hours and then a day of adaptation. Then we watch them for several days post-flight up to potentially even uh, several weeks post-flight to track their full recovery back to to normal. And this is specifically to quantify the responses, uh, the the re-accommodation, the re-adaptation back to gravity so engineers can design habitats and landers for Mars missions and they'll know what capabilities astronauts will have to design around. Right. Now, smart fellow that you are, you're going to say, but John, you already said that Mars has only one-third of a G, and here we are making them do all this stuff at one G. Again, you're reading my mind. Uh, we've worked <laughs> together so much, I, I, I can anticipate your, your almost your next thought. But the, you know, the, the deal is, yes, we are making them do it at one G, when normally on Mars there'd be at one-third of a G. All we've got is one G, and this is the closest we can get to that situation, so we have right. to we have to make the appropriate adjustments if we think it's necessary to, to compensate for that fractional gravity. But right now, uh, in answer to your next question, we don't have any information on that what fractional gravity does, and so we just have to assume that it will be as unpleasant, uncomfortable, difficult as 1G is. And then mm-hmm. once we get experience at fractional gravity, like if we go to the moon and get one-sixth of a G experience, or if we land on Mars and do it a few times, and say, you know what, that was not as hard as we said it was going to be. It's going to be easier here at one-third of a G. We can make the appropriate adjustments. Right. There's a lot deeper of a story here, I can tell. There's <laughs> a lot of different directions we can go. But I, I'm going to ask one more question, and then we're going to let you go. Um, so, you know, you have all these field tests, and you're, you're kind of preparing for what you know, uh, what we have to do in order to make a Mars mission work. So 
I do have one like theoretical question for you. In a perfect world, if you were to land on Mars, what would you want that to look like? I'm guessing. I mean, can it can it be as simple as they land on Mars and they're good? They get out of the capsule, or is there you know is there other things that we are going to have to sacrifice based on the knowledge we have now to to make that as easy as possible? I think uh, the answer is going to be yes and yes. Awesome. I think uh, astronauts come in varieties just like other people do, and some people will have problems accommodating, adjust, adjusting, adapting, and others will not. Uh, some folks are going to be able to land on Mars and bounce right up and feel like they want to go to work. We're probably going to insist that the landing vehicle be able to accommodate them for a couple of days. I see. Because we don't want to bet that they're all going to be perfect. They're all going to be bulletproof. And by perfect, I mean in this particular regard, because mm-hmm. they're all going to have, they're all going to be perfect in some way. It's not just, you know, the, not just the 70s kids. <laughs> we're, we're all perfect in some way, but they're, they're all not going to be perfect at adjusting to Mars. There's going to be some that are slower and some that are faster and some that are sort of run of the, the mill. Mm-hmm. We have to accommodate all of them because you can't leave the guy behind that's not feeling the best and then, then go and, and start exploring Mars. So right. the, the, the goal is to make the landing vehicle as lightweight as possible, previous discussion about mass and power and volume, right. which means minimize the amount of mass that you dedicate to life support systems. You don't want to build a two-week life support system into the lander. If you're only going to use it for a couple of days, then you're going to feel good enough to go out and then traipse across the, the desert to the habitat that's waiting for you with all the life support you can you can use inside mm-hmm. of it. Right. But you don't want to you don't want to carry excess life support, but you don't want to you don't want to carry too little life support in case it turns out to be just by the luck of the draw, you've got four people that are going to have a tough time readjusting, and yeah. they, they don't want to get put their spacesuits on and stumble across Mars face down into the <laughs> dust, you know, and things like that. Yeah, they'll need a couple so, of days. So what I would like to see the, the landing on Mars look like is that the entire crew feels good, and it was the luck of the draw that we got four people that just turned out to feel good this time. Mm-hmm. They're, they're, they understand the importance of the design of the habitat of the lander, so they... they take their time getting suited up and and uh, making the excursion out. Maybe they, uh, maybe we're clever on the first landing. We don't make them actually walk very much at all. We make them have a radio-controlled rover that deploys from the habitat and comes over and is waiting out their front door on the lander. Oh. And they get into that and they drive off to the habitat and they get in and, and set up housekeeping instead of actually having to stress themselves for the first time in, in a six or eight month period of time after they transited to Mars. That's a cool concept. So, nice. so, you know, valet ways service. To, valet <laughs> service, and it might be even, maybe even a self-driving car, so maybe yeah. Uber or, or, <laughs> or Google's going to have something to say about it. That's right. Uh, and then they gradually become uh, uh, accustomed to their environment on Mars so they can go to work on Mars. The, the, the habitat will have the gym, whatever it looks like, mm-hmm. as well as the food and the fresh water and the fresh air. But the point of all this is not to cater to the astronauts. The goal is to make sure that the astronauts are, uh, as I like to say, in the best condition of their lives when they land. Mm. So they minimize the time they spend readapting. Right. Because the Mars missions will be the most expensive undertakings humanity's ever embarked upon. Sure. And if we want to have a second and a third and a fourth and a fifth one, the first one had better be productive. 
and the way to be productive is to be in good condition so you can get to work as quickly as possible, allowing for the accommodation time of a few days or a week or so, and then get to work and show us why we sent you to Mars and make those Nobel Prize winning discoveries on Mars so that Congress and, and the, the parliaments of all the partner agencies and everybody, all the taxpayers think, yeah, that was a good thing. We want to do that some more. <laughs> we'll have more Mars missions and build up the flow to Mars and the infrastructure for Mars. So it's, it sounds like I'm altruistic, but Gary, you know me well enough to know that I'm not <laughs> altruistic. I want the astronauts to be in great condition when they land on Mars, not just for themselves, but for us too, because if we have hopes of becoming a multi-planet society, our first emissaries to other planets will have to be, will have to demonstrate how productive we can be in other planets, and mm -hmm. that's that's really the goal here. John, I want you to lead the charge and lead us <laughs> lead us all the way to Mars. Be I'm the not guy going landing. to Mars. <laughs> I want to right. stay at home and cheer them on. <laughs> Well, this was awesome. Thanks for coming on the show and talking about, you know, really analyzing what Shane was feeling and what, why we are doing what we're doing, you know, obviously for later missions and landing yep. on Mars. So obviously, you know, there's something that, there's some stuff that uh, Dr. Charles was not able to address today. So for those listening, if you want to know more or you have a suggestion on what we need to talk about, uh, stay tuned till after the music uh, to learn on where and how you can submit some ideas. So, uh, John, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Delighted. Glad to have you. Um, we'll probably have to have you again. Okay. <laughs> Hey, thanks for sticking around. So I hope you enjoyed our talk with Dr. John Charles and astronaut Shane Kimbrough. Uh, if you want to learn more about kind of all the things that specifically Dr. Charles talked about, uh, there's we actually have a website for that, uh, per usual, nasa.gov slash HRP. This is the website for the Human Research Program, and you can learn about everything that they're studying there. All of these things that Dr. Charles was talking about, the human body, bone density, even uh, we have some stuff about the twin study that happened uh, just uh, actually a couple years ago now when Scott Kelly launched in 2015. So you can find all that information there. A lot of the research that's done, and especially uh, with Shane Kimbrough uh, on the International Space Station, was uh, was done up there on that orbiting complex. You can go to nasa.gov slash ISS to learn about the latest updates on the uh, International Space Station, all the latest blogs and scientific findings. Uh, we also have a lot of cool pictures that we like to put up on that website. On social media, we're very active. Uh, Facebook is the International Space Station. That's their uh, Facebook page. On Twitter, we're at space underscore station. And on Instagram, it's at ISS. Uh, if you want to submit an idea or you have a question about something that we talked about on the podcast, just use that hashtag AskNASA on your favorite platform. doesn't matter. We'll check them all, and uh, we'll make sure that we uh, address it on one of the next podcasts that we do. And maybe we even will make a, a whole podcast out of, episode out of it. So uh, this podcast was recorded on April 19th. Uh, thanks to John Stoll and Eric Perriman for helping to produce the show. Thanks again to Dr. John Charles and Shane Kimbrough for coming on the show. See you in 6.79 souls. Get it? Because the Mars... Okay. See you next time.